want to read a few scriptures to you that are probably familiar. The first one says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3. Another one in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Another one in Psalm, Psalm 18.27, it says, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And in James 4.10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You might have noticed a repetitive word in those four verses, and there's many other verses like them where it's not, it's not tough to read much of Scripture to realize that we serve a God who is a God of the humble. He values humility. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story. And as I was looking at it a couple weeks ago, the thing that stood out to me the most was as I looked at these different characters, as I looked at Mary and I looked at Joseph and I looked at the angels and I looked at Jesus himself, I thought, wow, that God would use these people under these circumstances and in this way, uh, of all things to do. And that's what stood out to me as I, as I read through, I read through this story, especially in Luke 1 and 2, which we'll look at tonight. And the thing that I want us to come away with tonight is that if we want to be used by God like they were, if we want to know God like they did, if we want to experience the salvation from God that all the characters, of course, but Jesus did, then we need to value humility too. That needs to be part of who we are. So let me define humility for us as we look at the God of the humble tonight. Humility is a modest or a low view of one's own importance. A modest or low view of one's own importance. So we're going to see that in all of these characters tonight. We're going to look at each one of them. The primary passage we're going to be looking at tonight is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, that's going to be where we're at. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Let me read it to you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with married, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning this child. 
And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, as we um, look at your word, we see the kind of God that you are. We see the kind of people that you reveal yourself to, the kind of people that you use. We are struck by the fact that you are a God of the humble, that you value humility. And this is something so oftentimes, God, we struggle with. Our sinful nature says, put yourself first. Think of yourself more highly than you should. You're more important than you really are. God, I pray that you would help us to fight against that sinful nature. You would help us to follow the lead of the Spirit, to think of Christ, to think of others, to think of ourselves in a modest way. Help us to learn tonight from your word as we look at these different characters uh, in your word, and help us to think about these things, God, as we go throughout the Christmas season. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our text tonight, we have four characters that I want to look at. Uh, We have Joseph, Mary, and the shepherds, and Jesus himself. And so we're going to jump around in Scripture a little bit as we examine their lives and their words. And from a worldly standpoint, we're not going to see anything special about any of them. There's really nothing about them that impressed the world, where they were from, the job that they had, um, their reputation, their circumstances. The world was not impressed by these things. But God was impressed by the people that they were. And we're going to look at some of the things that God was impressed by as we see these different characters. First, I want to look at Mary and Joseph just just as a couple and point out a few things about them. The first thing I want to point out is we really don't know much about Mary and Joseph. That's a point. It's interesting that God chose parents of the Savior of the world that we don't know hardly anything about, isn't it? He could have chosen somebody that was very well-known, wealthy, powerful, and he didn't. He chose two people that we don't know much about. We do know some things about them. We'll look at here in just a minute. But by and large, society would have said, these, these are some nobodies. The world would have been thoroughly unimpressed by them and the resume that they had. First of all, here's something that we know about them. According to verse 4, that they were from Nazareth. They were from Nazareth. I don't know if you remember Nathaniel's comment in John chapter 1, verse 46... Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, you kind of hope somebody doesn't say that about your hometown, right? Can anything good come from Jackson, Missouri? From Cape Girardeau? It's like, ugh. But apparently, Nazareth did not have a very impressive reputation. There's a guy named Dr. James Strange. He's a professor of religious studies who studied the town of Nazareth um, for over a decade, just trying to figure out more things about it um, during the time of Christ's birth and Initially, in his research, he, f- he found that, hey, it was a really small town, probably 1,600, 2,000 people, not very big, but as he did more and more research, he came to the conclusion this town was no bigger than about 480 people max. And a town around here that's about that size would be Gordonville, small town. Maybe don't expect too much to happen there. Comparatively, you have Jerusalem. It was estimated to be from tens of thousands to over 100,000 people. It was the religious center of that culture. It was very important in Israel's history. Shouldn't the Messiah's parents be from there? Doesn't that make a little bit more sense? 
But they weren't. Instead, God chose Nazarenes to parent the Messiah. That should tell us something. When we see, and we also see that the religious elite, that they didn't think much about the Nazarene area either. The area was known as Galilee. I'm sure you've heard of that before. When Nicodemus is trying to defend Jesus in John 7, uh, 51, the other Pharisees, they say, no, no prophets come out of Galilee. Like, this guy's from Galilee, the region. Come on, it's Galilee. We're not, we don't think much about Galilee because they haven't even had a single prophet that's come out of, out of there. They were wrong in that. Of course, Jesus was a prophet as well. But all to say that Mary and Joseph's hometown was not very impressive in the world's eyes. Secondly, Mary and Joseph were poor. We know this because of the sacrifice that they brought to the temple after Jesus was born. According to Old Testament law in Leviticus 12, they were required to bring an offering after childbirth. The normal offering was a lamb and a bird, which was a dove or a pigeon. There was an allowance, though, that if you were too poor to bring one of your livestock and a bird, you could just bring two birds. And as we look at Luke 2, uh, verse 24, we didn't read that, but a little bit further in the story, we see them bringing two birds and no lamb as their sacrifice to the temple. Mary and Joseph didn't have much money. What comes along with that? Well, they probably didn't have a lot of power. They probably didn't have a lot of influence either. So the coming king of Israel that everybody was looking for, people have been waiting for for such a long time, comes to some parents that had no pull. They had no power. They had no fame. Doesn't make sense in the world's eyes, but it made perfect sense to God. Thirdly, we see Mary and Joseph, they were just simple, humble, godly people. Luke 2.21, we see that they were an obedient couple. As I just said, they went to the temple as the law prescribed them to do. They made the trip to Jerusalem. They brought the sacrifices that they were supposed to bring because that's what God told them to do. So like, well, that's what we're going to do. We just simply are going to obey Additionally, we see them give up the right to name their firstborn child. The angel said, hey, call him Jesus. They said, oh, okay, that's what we're going to do. So God asked them to do things. They simply did it. We know they were caring parents. If you look further on in Luke chapter 2, the story we have of Jesus uh, being left in the temple. And what are they doing? They're anxiously looking for him, right? You would do that as a parent too, right? All good parents want to know where their kids are at, especially if your son is the son of God. You're like, we lost him. This is not good, you know. They were good parents. They cared about what was going on with their child and with their children. But when we think about Mary and Joseph, really, they're, they're so unassuming. They're, they're not impressive by the world's standards. Unknown, from a small town, poor, simple. I mean, this is not front page material, but God chose them to parent the long-awaited Messiah. Really, their only claim to fame was their distant lineage. And this was going to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah coming from King David's line. Both of them were in the line of King David. I would imagine this maybe came up every now and again at maybe like a family reunion. Oh, yeah, you know, David was our great, 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 grandpa. Remember that? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, that's great. I remember I went to a family reunion one time, and it seems like if you get around enough extended family, everybody has a genealogist in there. So we went to a Callis family reunion years ago, and it was a guy, honestly, I I didn't know him well, I couldn't even give you his name right now, but he came with something he had rolled up, and he put it up on the wall, and our names were down here, and he traced it all the way back, and the oldest relative that we had on there was King Henry I, and I said, I'm royalty? 
I did not know this. Why hasn't anybody told me this? I'm from the royal line. And so I felt, you know, I'm kind of like Mary and Joseph, nothing real special about me, you know, that really stands out. But now I know that I'm royalty. So every so often I would bring that up and I would remember that. And I can remember that I brought that up to, uh, to some youth one time. And, and then they did a little homework on King Henry I, which was not good. They uh, did a little Wikipedia search and they found, well, King Henry I, hey, we just wanted to let you know what we found out about him. I was like, oh, what'd you find out about him? Well, he was known for being unfaithful to his wife and having a lot of illegitimate children. I said, oh, okay, I'm not going to talk about that or claim that anymore. Okay, so my, uh, my claim to fame, my royal line, well, kind of went shot right there. So as we think about Mary and Joseph, we think about where they're from, we think about who th- their status and things like that. They've been glamorized through the years, but really there was nothing special from the world's standpoint. There were two normal people. But God chose two lowly, humble nobodies to raise the Savior of the world. We forget just how awe-inspiring that really is. But Paul says, hey, this is God's method. Like, this is how God does it. This is in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then he answers, why would God do this? Why is this his method? In verse 29 he says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God uses nobodies. Why does he use nobodies? Because he gets all the glory when a nobody does something. He gets the glory because he makes them into a somebody. That's exactly what we see him doing with Mary and Joseph. Both of them were adored by God because of their humble status and the character that they had, and God used them in glorious ways. And what I want to do is we individually look at Joseph, Mary, the angels, and then to Jesus, I want you to think about as we list some characteristics of each one of them that I would say would fall under their uh, overall demeanor of being a humble person, I want you to think about, wow, that's one that I need to ask God to help me with that one. I want to work on that one. Uh, that's, That's something that I need to be in my life. So let's look at these people individually. First, we have Joseph. Well, did you know that Joseph, we don't have a single recorded conversation from Joseph. There's not a spoken word from Joseph's in the, entire, uh, in the entire scriptures. And it's assumed that he died before Jesus ever began his public ministry. We see Mary, but we don't see Joseph around. But despite not knowing much about Joseph, there are some things that we can know, and we can see that he is a humble servant of God. First of all, we know that Joseph was just. Joseph was just. Matthew 1.19 says that he was a just man, and he was merciful, think about this, his, his wife, who he assumed at this point has committed adultery against me, and he said, you know what, I have, I have rights according to the Old Testament law to have her put to death, but I don't want to do that, and I don't even want to publicly humiliate her for what she's done to me. I mean, what a humble and merciful man. 
He didn't want to have her put to death. He didn't want to have her shamed whatsoever and had committed to quietly divorcing her. Joseph was just. Secondly, he was a man of faith. He listened to God without question. When God told him, do this through an angel, he went and he did it. Matthew 1.24, the angel told Joseph in a dream. He gets four angelic visits in dreams. The first one, he's told, hey, don't divorce your wife. Instead, keep her as your wife. This conception is by the Holy Spirit. It's true. That's what's actually happened. In verse 24, he wakes up. He says, he did as the angel commanded. And it could have been easy for him to be like, well, I don't know. Maybe I ate something. I don't know if that was real, uh, you know, and and question it. But instead, he was like, no, the angel told me to do this. I'm going to do it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, Joseph gets another angelic message in a dream And the angel says, rise, take the child, and flee to Egypt, because Herod is coming to get him. And so it says, he didn't even wait till morning. In Matthew 2, 14, it says that he rose at night, and he fled to Egypt. There was no delay in listening to God. There was no delay in obeying the Lord's command. He didn't ask questions like, well, how long am I going to be gone? Is it days? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it years? Um, Where am I going to go? I don't know anybody in Egypt. Where am I going to stay? It's 100 plus miles to get there. How is that all going to work out? That's probably what I would have started saying and coming up with all these questions. But Joseph, he gets up. He's like, we've got to go. God said to go, so we're going. That's exactly what he did. Two more times in Matthew chapter 2, Joseph listens to an angel who appeared to him in a dream, and he trusted God every time. He listened to God no matter what God asked him to do. So Joseph was a man of faith. Thirdly, he was a family leader. And all these things kind of show another point about Joseph. Whenever God called him, he not Mary, but he called him, he said, hey, Joseph, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go here. I want you to go there. And he led his child and his wife, and he went and he did it. In the last three angelic dreams that he had, the Lord gives him, not Mary, the message. Here's where I want you to lead your family. In Matthew 2, 13, he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And Joseph did. In Matthew 2, 20, he said, rise, take the child and his mother and go to Israel. And Joseph rose. And then lastly, he said, don't go to Judea. Instead, go to Galilee. And it says, and Joseph went. He did exactly what God commanded him to do. He followed God's lead. His family followed his lead. He was a great family leader. But one thing we also know about Joseph, despite the good things about him, is he was flawed. Two different times we see in this story that Joseph was afraid in Matthew 1.20, this verse tells us Joseph was considering all these things that was happening to him and Mary and, and trying to figure out exactly what to do, his decision to divorce Mary quietly. And one of the things he struggled with in the situation was fear. The angel tells, jo- tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear. In Matthew 2.21 Joseph rose and he was going back to Israel. He heard that one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, was now in power over the area that he was going to. And what happened? God had taken care of him thus far, but he was afraid. Was God going to do it again? Is he going to take care of me this time? He was afraid. So Joseph, he was a just man. He was a man of faith. He was a family leader, but he was flawed. But all the while, he was a humble servant of God. Secondly, we have Mary. We know a little bit more about Mary. Mary gets a speaking part. She even sings a song that we have record of. And in these responses, we see a very similar heart to Joseph's shining through. She is a humble servant of the Lord. First of all, she was also a person of faith. She was a woman of faith. We see this in Luke chapter 1. Mary gets visited by the angel. She's told that she is favored by God. She will conceive in her womb 
the Son of the Most High, who is going to reign forever and ever. And Mary responds with, how could this be? And you might look at that on the surface and be like, that doesn't sound faithful. That sounds like she's doubting. But she wasn't. And here's how we know. Zacharias, who was John the Baptist's father, just a little bit earlier, asked a similar question when an angel told him, hey, you guys are going to conceive. And his response to Gabriel, the same angel that visited Mary in Luke 1.18, was, how will I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Gabriel rebukes his unbelief and says, well, you're not going to talk until John is born. He doesn't rebuke Mary. Apparently, this was an honest question. How, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel answers that question. He explains the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. And in Luke 1.38, she accepts that assignment. She says, let it be done according to your word. Her cousin Elizabeth confirms this faith in Luke 1.45 when she commends Mary and says, blessed is she who believed, not doubted, but believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary believed God. She was a woman of faith. Thirdly, she was favored by God. She was, or secondly, she was favored by God. The angel's greeting in Luke 1.28 tells Mary that she is favored by God. How could this be? Was, was this because Mary had earned it? Mary was better than all the other women out there. We just didn't know it. No, that's, that's not the case. It was granted to her. Favor with God was granted to her. In fact, the word that's used here in the original Greek for favor is only used here in one other place, and it doesn't mean that you've earned it. It means the opposite. It actually means to make graceful. She was made graceful. We see really this more clearly in the other usage of it in Ephesians 1.6. Paul is talking about all believers. He says they're chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame. They're predestined for adoption as sons through Christ in accordance with God's will. And then he says in verse 6, this is to the praise of his, not their, but his glorious grace with which he has blessed, that's the same Greek word, us in the beloved. How was Mary blessed? How was she favored? Because God favored her. He made her graceful. And he does the same thing to believers today. So Mary was favored by God. Thirdly, she had a rich theology of God. We see this in Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. After being overwhelmed by all the things that are happening, and Mary sings this song that you can see just pour out of her heart. And she says things about, about how big God is in her eyes. Here's some things that she says in Luke 1. Verse 46, she says that God is her Savior. He is the God who saves. In verse 48 and 52, he pays special attention to and exalts the humble. In verse 49, she says he's mighty and he is holy. In verse 50, she says he is merciful in verse 51 through 53, she says, he brings down the proud, he brings down the mighty, he brings down the rich. In verse 53, she said that he fills the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he is faithful to Israel. Verse 55, he gave his spoken word to Abraham and his offspring. It sounds like Mary's been reading some systematic theology. It's like, this is some good theology about God, Mary. She didn't have a systematic theology book, but she had God's word. She knew what it said about him, and she believed it. And it wasn't some stoic, mechanical, head knowledge belief. And we see that in the next thing that we learn about Mary. Number four, she was a worshiper of God. Not only did she have rich theology about God, but it caused her to worship him. It caused her to love him. And we see at the beginning of her song in Luke 1:47, Mary begins her song like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
She magnified God. What does a magnifying glass do? Makes things look bigger, right? So in her soul, God was big, and she wanted him to look big to those that she was around. It also says she rejoiced in God, her Savior. Knowing God made her be filled with joy to want to serve him, to want to do his will. It says in Luke 2, 19, too, that Mary treasured all these things that God had done. She treasured them in her heart. So Mary was a worshiper of God. But just like Joseph, Mary was not perfect. Mary was misguided. She was misguided. Despite all these great things that she had learned, the position that God had put her in, still we see in Mark chapter 3, verses 21 through 32, we see that Mary and the rest of Jesus' family, his siblings, are coming to Jesus and saying, we think he's out of his mind. We need to take him with us. And, and who knows what Mary was thinking, but somewhere along the line, she had forgot what Jesus was going to be all about. And maybe she had more concern for his personal well-being. Maybe she thought, I, I knew he was going to be the son of God, but this is pretty radical. He's really controversial. You know, maybe we need to get him out of there. But Jesus dismissed her comments and concerns and claimed, you know what, my real family are the people that are here with me. That's more important than my earthly family. So Mary was misguided. But much like her husband, Mary was a humble follower of God. She wasn't perfect, um, but still, she was a woman of faith. She was favored by God. She had a rich theology about who God was, and it caused her to worship God from her soul. So we have Joseph. We have Mary. The world, not impressed, but God is impressed by their character and their hearts. Thirdly, we have the shepherds. So we have the lowly shepherds. There was an article that Randy Alcorn wrote. You can check this out on his website if you want to. It's called Shepherd Status. And he gives us a clearer picture about what society and the religious elite thought about shepherds. And it was not impressive. He says, in Christ's day, shepherds stood on the bottom rung of the Palestinian social ladder. They shared the same unenviable status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. Over time... Shepherding went from a noble occupation in Abraham and Jacob's day to being seen really of more of a low-level despised position as they moved into Egypt. And then as the Israelites escaped Egypt, got into the promised land and had more farmland, shepherding and pasturing just became less and less and less. And despite the shepherd boy David being king and in Psalm 23, him even calling God a great shepherd... Shepherds became despised in everyday life. They were like second-class citizens, and they were considered to be untrustworthy. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is Judaism's written record of the oral law, shepherds were called incompetent, and it even said that if you happen to see one that's fallen in a pit, don't rescue them. They're not worth it. That's what people thought about shepherds. They were deprived of civil rights, like fulfilling judiciary roles or even testifying in court. And like many others who didn't perform well enough to meet the religious leader's standards, they were written off, they were lumped in with, oh, those are the sinners over there, just like the prostitutes, just like the tax collectors, just like the shepherds. And yet, the first people that God tells, hey, the Messiah is here, wasn't the religious elite. It wasn't, it wasn't anybody except the shepherds. He comes to the shepherds first, the people written off by society. It's amazing. We see God's heart for those in humble circumstances like the shepherds. Here's some things that we can figure out about the shepherds as we look at the story. Number one, they were caring. Shepherds were caring. We see in Luke 2.8, tells us that they were out in the field 
keeping watch over their flock by night. This word keeping carries the sense of to guard over, to, to watch closely. They cared about their sheep. They didn't want to lose any of them. They cared. Jesus made this point in Luke 15 when he's talking to the Pharisees. He said, hey, if you had 100 sheep and one of them got lost, he's like, you'd go find it. And you would rejoice when you found it. And so if the Pharisees cared that much about sheep, we know the shepherds really cared about their sheep. They were caring people. They were cared for. Secondly, they were cared for by God. The angel appeared to them and told them in Luke 2, 10 through 11, he said, fear not, for behold, I give you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It will be for all the people. But unto, but unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice that he specifically mentions that the good news is going to be for all people. I think the shepherds needed to hear that. This isn't just for those people. This is for me. Others had told him they weren't worth rescuing. God says, yes, you are. In fact, he says that a Savior is coming. This is one of the few times that Jesus is even called Savior in the Gospels. It doesn't happen very often, but he wanted them to know, you're worth saving. I've come to save you, lowly people like you shepherds. I haven't written you off. You are cared for by God. Thirdly, they were obedient. Much like Joseph, much like Mary, when the shepherds were told by the angel where the Christ child would be, it says in verse 16 of Luke 2 that they made haste, that they went at once. They didn't linger in fear. They didn't doubt. They didn't question. They went at once. They believed God, and they went off to Bethlehem. Fourthly, they were unashamed. They were unashamed. After visiting Jesus, Luke 2.20 tells us that the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. They go back home ready to share the good news. They uh, maybe didn't know too much about a rich theology about God, maybe as Mary did. But what they knew, they said, hey, we're going to go and we're going to share this. We're going to tell everybody that we see about it as we go back home. We might be incredible witnesses in court, but we don't care if people believe us or not. We're going to tell them what we've seen and glorify God. But also, just like Joseph and Mary, too, fifthly, they were in need. Surely the reputation of a shepherd, which was a stereotype, but some of it had to be true. They were untrustworthy. They were known as thieves. Some of that did carry weight with some of them, I'm sure. They were in need of a Savior, just like Mary and Joseph were. So the shepherds, they were humble Seemingly unimportant by society's standards. They certainly were needy sinners, just like Mary and Joseph. They showed themselves, though, to be people who cared, people who were cared for, people who were obedient and unashamed about God. Lastly, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. He's the last person and the most important person in this story. But as we look at him tonight and we look at the circumstances of Jesus Right off the bat, we can tell he's, he's the most helpless, helpless, dependent one of all. He's a baby in a manger. But yet he's God of the universe. Why? Why, why, why did he write the story like this? It's amazing what Jesus left behind to come here and to come here in the way that he did. To come here at all would have been leaving many great things behind, but yet he came here in the way that he did. He left his kingdom in heaven, worship 24-7 to be born in a barn here on earth. He was the center of heaven, of heavenly feasts. Now he's lying in a dirty feeding trough for animals. He gave up the riches of heaven to be born in poverty to poor parents here on earth. 
He was the creator of time and space. Now he's entering into time and space and all the difficulties and limitations that come with that. He was eternal God putting on mortal flesh. He gave up the never-ending worship of heaven to be despised and rejected here on earth. Why would he do this? He could have written the story differently, but he didn't. Why did he, why did he do this? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, he gives us a glimpse. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did he do it? He gave up, he gave up everything so that he could save us and bring glory to himself which he deserves and to, and to God the Father. The angel gives Jesus many names and titles and descriptions as he's talking to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. First he says to Mary, he says that this, this man is going to be great. He's going to be holy. He's going to be called the son of the most high and his kingdom is going to be eternal. He tells Joseph, this is the one who will save. In fact, his name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. The angel described Jesus to the shepherds as the one who would bring great joy to all people, everyone told the shepherds he would be their savior. He was Christ the Lord. And yet Matthew even reminds us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, that he would be called a Nazarene. Remember how we talked about Nazareth, the Nazarenes? He was willing to associate with the nobodies of this earth. He was willing to associate with those of low position. Unlike our humble characters, Jesus was never flawed. These people had great character, at least in God's sight. They weren't impressive by the world's standards. But Jesus had all these things to perfection. He was never misguided. He was never in need of saving. He was never flawed. And Hebrews 4.15, it tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews 12.2 says he was the author and the perfecter of our faith, the perfecter. He was perfect. Joseph was a humble servant. He was just. He was faithful. He was a great leader. Jesus was all those things in perfection. Mary was a humble servant. She was faithful. She was favored by God. She knew God's character. But Jesus was all those things in perfection. The shepherds, they were caring. They were cared for by God. They were obedient. They were unashamed. Jesus was all those things in perfection. And he never deserved anything but glory. But he was willing to give that up for a time to save us. We see the humility of our God. And when we think about Jesus and what he was willing to give up, who, who are we to think much of ourselves? Who are we to say, me first? Who are we to say, hey, my preference goes here? Who are we to try to make ourselves the center of our own little universes when Jesus gave up everything to come and to give himself for us? Jesus deserves everything. He set them aside. We serve a very humble Savior. We definitely see that as we look at this story in his beginnings and, of course, in his ending. If you want to be used by God, if you want to be on God's side, if you want to be favored by God, you have to strive to be humble like our God is humble. 
Think of some of the things that these people were as we look at Joseph, we look at Mary, we look at the angels, we hear about Jesus. These are the kind of people that God uses. If you want to be used by God and to know him, this is what we want to shoot for. The verses that I read at the very beginning tonight, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to end our time by worshiping our humble Savior. He came to the earth in humble circumstances as we looked at tonight. He gave up the glories of heaven to ultimately be despised and rejected here on earth. And as we take communion tonight, we have been called to remember that sacrifice, remember his death, remember his resurrection, and examine our own hearts as well. Where, where is pride lingering in your heart and in your life? Where is that selfish me-first attitude residing? What needs to be repented of? That's what we do whenever we take communion. We remember Christ and his sacrifice, and we also think about ourselves. We think about, where am I missing the mark? Think about some of these characteristics that some of these people embodied tonight. Where are you missing the mark? Repent of those before God tonight and ask God to change you and to forgive you. If you aren't a believer here tonight, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that you refrain from taking communion. And the reason is because you don't have communion. You don't have a relationship with God. And so instead, I want to encourage you to think about the things that were said tonight. You you can repent of your sins and trust Christ right where you're sitting. Be the best decision that you ever made. And as you've heard tonight, he is worthy of that. Let me me pray for us. And uh, we have... A table up, or we have several tables up here in the front on the sides and then also here uh, right in front of me. So after I pray, take some time to um, speak with the Lord and then come up and get communion. Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are and that you would associate with people like us. You are glorious. You deserve everything. You are willing to give up those things to save us. And therefore, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, you are worthy. Every knee should bow, and one day every knee will bow before you. And, And you're worthy. We're not. Help us to remember that. Help us to think of ourselves in modest, in a modest way. Help us to strive for the things that you want us to strive for, the characteristics that we've seen tonight, to to be caring as the shepherds were to be people of faith as Mary and Joseph were, to have a rich theology about who God is and to worship you not just with the things that we know in our heads, but the things we believe and would die for in our hearts. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to remember those things. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to come and to pay the price for our sins. We deserve that judgment, but yet you took it for those that would trust you and believe. So we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you're not dead, that you rose from the grave, that you still live today to intercede for those that trust in you. So God, we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the reminders tonight of the great God that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.